Hi, welcome to Pencils Down. I'm Federico Berardello, CEO of Finalis, a modern broker-dealer powered by a deal technology platform. Pencils Down is a brand new podcast covering the private markets deal landscape. On this podcast, I interview the world's leading investment bankers, placement agents, financial sponsors, and startup CEOs. On today's episode, I'm excited to be joined by Alex Coles. Alex is the founder and managing director of Evolve Capital Partners, a boutique investment bank based in New York City. Alex is one of the most thoughtful boutique bankers in the industry, and Finalis is lucky to count on Alex as a member of our iBanker Advisory Council. Just a quick disclaimer that this conversation was recorded prior to COVID-19 hitting the United States. So with that, let's get started. First of all, welcome to the Pencils Down podcast. And tell me a little bit how you made your way into the investment banking space. Obviously, we've had a number of conversations about the industry, but I actually don't know a whole lot about your story. Yeah. So I predominantly spent my entire professional career in the investment banking space, more around corporate finance. You know, it really wasn't what I had planned to do coming out of undergrad, but rather it was a function of, hey, you know, I had a really good mentor an undergrad who was plugged into the space. And, you know, I just generally did pretty well in, you know, these accounting corporate finance classes. And he really encouraged me to go on this path, right? So 17 years ago, I started doing internships with mid-sized firms and then ended up with Merrill as an analyst in their program. They were fortunate enough to uh, extend me an offer. So the rest is history. You know, continued on in the space personally. I had more of an affinity for you know, the lower middle market where I think as a mid-level or junior banker, you have more of an impact on the deal that you're working on. Not to say the other way around is not beneficial. So, you know, really kind of cut my teeth in the true middle market space, Houlihan and BDO, and then moved forward to founding Evolve. And it was just a continuation of, you know, that skill set, but, you know, in a much more particular industry. Yeah. A lot of bankers I've spoken to can often point to a very clear memory as it relates. You mentioned client exposure. Can you remember a situation that you were in as a junior banker that for you stirred something in terms of the excitement or the adrenaline of being exposed to a client on a deal? Sure. No, that's a great question. So I would say myself being very kind of client focused, like putting myself out there, whether it's on a BD perspective or, you know, live deal stuff, but being able to interact with that client and produce whatever it is at the end of the day. I mean, I'm much more senior today. It can be, you know, simple advice to, hey, putting together a PowerPoint describing how a company has performed versus their projections, putting those out there and putting those together and generating a good result, but also having your client appreciate it is by far, for me, one of the best feelings because you are helping someone out. And if you are not in the profession to help someone out, probably you're in the wrong profession. And I think that kind of applies to, you know, anybody in the professional services space, but especially in kind of high finance. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that was definitely, you know, my experience as well, kind of at K&E coming in as a junior associate and really being pushed out to the front from a very early point and having that direct client engagement. And I'm just curious, you know, you've taken that career in the direction now of launching your own boutique bank. Tell me a little bit about that thought process as you were going through your career at larger banks in terms of ultimately wanting to take that entrepreneurial leap and launching your own boutique. 
gosh, I sound old when I say this, but you know, about 11 years ago or so when I was working at BDO and there are special situations restructuring group, we ran a lot of creditor committees, secured, unsecured creditors, stuff of that nature. And we helped oversee a lot of auction processes, right? M&A processes. And, you know, quite frankly, the exposure in that environment was second to none, the best, I think, for someone who was, you know, right in the middle levels, eager to kind of grow. But also, I saw a whole host of characters on the banking side advising companies from, you know, UBS, you know, advising asset dispositions and bankruptcy to a single shingle guy advising a company. And seeing these smaller firms, especially the very small ones, execute in the environment and actually sometimes doing very well was exceptionally eye-opening. And I can't name names, but some of these professionals that ran very small firms, you know, they were distinguished people, but I probably could do a job just as good as them or even better. And so that was very eye-opening to me. So I think, you know, I had the entrepreneurial itch start to bubble up then. I was in another firm as well, too. And I had managing directors around me when I was a VP at the time that were generating business. And you kind of would sit there and scratch your head and you'd say, how are they doing this? I can do this. So I think just, you know, culmination of seeing smaller size firms and people getting business that maybe they should not be getting it. But that opened my eyes and kind of inspired me to a degree. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I think there what I'm hearing is a combination of kind of a personal predisposition, maybe just based on, you know, who Alex Coles is as a person, you know, more entrepreneurially minded, but also perhaps, you know, a reflection on a bigger trend that we're seeing in the industry with the rise of the boutiques. What kind of contributing factors do you think are out there that are making it easier for boutiques such as Evolve to get itself set up and to start to land some new business? I mean, it's much easier today than it was 10 years ago or 20 or 30. But as you know very well, a technology enables a smaller platform to thrive as opposed to what you might be facing, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. So the barrier to entry is a little bit lower, I think, in some aspects. But the quality of technology and data that exists out there is way more plentiful. It's easier than ever to access. But I think on the flip side, there are so many technology providers, data providers, bits of data out there, even in the corporate finance space. You've got to be smart. You need to know which sources to use and you know how to implement it. And I think you know that kind of maybe what sets us apart from some of the you know more established groups out there is I'm a big believer in the use of technology and financial services because if you do not adapt, I think you will get left behind for sure. Yeah, and I think that's a great segue into what was going to be my next question, which is really relating to, you know, evolve secret sauce in the marketplace. What are the critical elements that makes evolve stand out from its competition? There's several elements. I'd say first is we are by nature of how we're set up, we are entrepreneurial in our mindset and spirit. And I think that a lot of our clients that are entrepreneurial run businesses see eye to eye with me in terms of how they grew their business. They respect, I think, us to where we have gotten it. So I think understanding kind of the pains that an entrepreneur goes through or you know, a startup or a mid-stage business that it goes through, I think they appreciate that. Second, just using technology to, as an example, better vet the market for selling a business. I think we will go much further and deeper and broader to more buyers or investors and to a company, especially in the 
market segment that we operate in. You can go to a Raymond James or you can go to KBW. They're both great institutions, but for, you know, kind of hidden pockets of capital, I think we're probably going to have, in some aspects, a better level of suitability from our investors or buyers uh, for some of our clients, just because of where we operate and the breadth and use of technology to get us there. And then finally, I think just you know, being a younger team is a great selling point with our clients because we're more, I don't want to say energetic, but probably a little bit more scrappy than maybe what you're going to find from a highly established firm. Again, I think those are some of the differentiators. And then also spending time in the financial services tech space exclusively is, in my eye, a differentiator because you can hire a generalist. And I do believe generalists are smart people and they can't figure it out. But if you have a business process outsource firm that is in the dental space, right, that client does not want to spend hours or days educating an advisor on what they do and who the participants are in the space and what valuations are, because you need to know that for a particular vertical that you're advising in. And I think that's a huge competitive advantage versus a pure generalist, at least in today's market. And I think that's going to become more important over the next five or 10 years. Yeah, we've definitely noticed that as well, as we've been talking to boutiques that, you know, there tends to be a direction in favor of specialization. And that specialization usually comes in one of two colors, either it's industry focused specialization, or it's geographic focused specialization, where, you know, folks are really leveraging the power of their regional specific network. So I definitely can say that, you know, based on the other boutiques we've been speaking with, that's definitely consistent. One thing that you mentioned earlier that stood out to me was the notion of being younger and scrappier. Can you give me a couple of examples of how that's actually, you know, manifested in enabling you guys to land new business? Yes. So we have a client in the BPO space. It's a tech-enabled services software business. It's in the dental space, actually. This is a company that, to give you an example, I think it's a good one, we tracked for several years. And the owner is entrepreneurial, company's growing at you know, 30 to 50% a year. I think he started out in a similar fashion as I did. Uh, I think he respected that. But also, I had to chase this piece of business exceptionally hard because the competition was cutthroat. There were four or five other bankers throwing themselves at him. I had to be extremely aggressive. We had to be very quick in responding. So we would fly out to the client site, visit with him you know, several times, actually responded very quick with valuations or views. And I think being responsive, having an edge, knowing the space provided us a leg up. And also, I think he liked us as well, too. So I think a function of that and also kind of being a little bit younger in some aspects did give us a leg up. And, you know, this deal, if it gets done, it's about a $50, $60 million transaction. So that's a great win for us. And we like those opportunities. Sometimes it's not that complicated. It just comes down to hustle, doesn't it? Yes. And I would say... Hustle is important, but you have to be smart in terms of how you hustle. Maybe that is one differentiator for me or us versus what you'll see out in the other parts of the lower middle market, which is we just don't reach out to someone and hustle for the heck of it. There's got to be an angle and it's got to be well thought out. The rationale that is, it has to be well thought out. And I think people appreciate that as opposed to just kind of, you know, blindly hustling. I guess I put my glasses on when I hustle as opposed to putting a bag over my head. (laughs) That's fair. And I guess from a technology perspective, one way of thinking about it is that we don't expect you guys to be using MailChimp to mass mail a bunch of prospective customers anytime soon. I'm sure it would be easier, but I don't think you'll see us doing that ever. (laughs) 
Right. Well, let's segue a bit because obviously we're in a new year and I was reading earlier your market roundup report, but I thought it'd be great to get into a broader conversation around some of the industry trends that you and Evolve are tracking this year and what makes you excited. Yeah. So I think, well, broadly speaking in the financial services and you know the tech space, I mean, just speaking very broadly, you're going to see continued M&A activity and investment activity into the space. So Visa, just a couple of days ago, announced their acquisition of Plaid, which is a $5.2 billion fintech that connects banks and consumers and lenders and stuff like that. You know, I think that's a good bellwether transaction for 2020. And we'll continue to see more of those types of transactions. And that's great that those kinds of deals happen at the top because it filters down to the bottom, you know, in the lower middle market. Rural areas, I see a lot of good trends in, which is anything in the B2B software space, generically speaking, will continue to be very strong, I think, from a kind of an M&A investment perspective, because, you know, B2B software is enabling a lot of these mid-sized and even smaller sized businesses to upgrade their technology and infrastructure. And I mean, you're seeing this in your business, I'm sure, and who you're talking to. But that continued spend, I think, by the businesses to upgrade their technology and infrastructure, I think that's going to continue for not another year or two years, but another three to five years, which bodes well for the software businesses serving the space. You know, particular areas, anything kind of in B2B payments, so whether if it's remittance or invoicing or payables or uh, receivables, stuff of that nature, I'm pretty bullish in that area. So Bill.com did an IPO uh, not too long ago, and that has performed exceptionally well. And so if you were to look at a bunch of the IPOs over the last six months or so, Bill.com is, I think, one of the best, if not the best, that is out there. And they're a financial services software business that enables you know, B2B payments. So I'm pretty bullish in that space. You know, One area I do think that will probably perform okay is the general banking sector. You know, they drive a lot in the fintech space, financial services space. You know, JP Morgan announced today their best profits ever of any bank ever anywhere, if my memory is correct. So they're performing well. So I think the banking sector will be okay. You'll see more banks getting acquired as well, some more continued consolidation. So yeah, I mean, for us, some of the stuff we're seeing and predicting, I guess, we're viewing. It sounds like a pretty rosy picture, at least with respect to the industries that Evolve is focused in. I mean, I guess if we were to look at the flip side, are there any industries in particular that you think were maybe on the tail end of last year, early this year, where you're starting to notice some warning signs in terms of the direction that it may go? Yes, that's another good question. You know, we had worked on several transactions, you know, attempted transactions in the specialty finance space, alternative lending space, and just kind of how long in the tooth we are with the consumer and just continued economic growth here a lot of the buyers or investors into these businesses are very skittish and they have been for the last 13, 14 months, especially in December of 2018, the market volatility was quite a high. So I think those types of businesses, and you can look at the valuations in our market roundup that indicates that they are probably the lowest valued sector that we cover today. And again, it's just, you know, some of these loan books and portfolios are starting to show a little bit of signs of cracks. Underwriting has heightened, though, with a lot of these alternative lenders. So, you know, if I were an investor or a buyer, I'd be much more picky about what I'd touch in that space, especially anything that's got any balance sheet risk, for sure. And then if we were to take a step back and just think about the investment banking sector generally, you know, where do you see the opportunities for Evolve in the coming couple of years 
in light of some of the other trends. I mean, one of the trends that I noted earlier was just the fact that the space seems to be becoming more fragmented, at least in the lower middle market with more and more boutiques entering the fray. You know, how do you see the opportunities for Evolve over the coming year or two? So that's a really good question. I wish I had my crystal wall working, but, you know, in the lower middle market, we have seen some acquisitions of our competitors, actually. This happens every 15 or 20 years, right? You have a lot of these veteran deal makers or people like us go out and start a firm and then they get acquired over time. I think you're seeing some of that consolidation. So Houlihan Loki bought a firm in New York called Freeman Spogli, I believe is the name. Uh, they're a boutique that's focused on financial service types of companies. You have Intrepid Bankers out of uh, Southern California. They're acquired by Union Bank. So I think you're seeing some consolidation. I'm fine with that. I actually like that because when you, quote unquote, have a competitor taken out of the market, it's not always the case, but oftentimes that competitor becomes much different because they're now absorbed into a larger culture. Maybe the environment is different. Maybe the deal sizes are different to take on. The senior partners leave after two years, after their earn out or whatever expires. So for us, I'm fine with that. I encourage it because it starts to open up the market. And for myself and our team here, we're going to go long in this. This is not a you know two or three year and get out kind of thing. This building an enterprise takes a long time, especially in the financial service space. So I don't know, maybe our time will come around in you know, 2035. But I think the consolidation is fine. Yeah. And then just in terms of thinking about, you know, technology and other sorts of innovations that would make your life easier as an investment banker. I mean, can you think of any that you think would be particularly helpful as you continue to grow and scale? Yes. Any and everything you can invent would be much appreciated. So (laughs) I would say for a pain point right now that we experience is threefold, I would say. First, it's just automating any of the front-end marketing processes, meaning getting the materials out, and scheduling calls and all that kind of good stuff is very, very time-consuming and almost to a degree somewhat repetitive. Second, I'd love to be able to have a solution that's, I don't know if it's AI or machine learning based, but it extracts from emails or communications key points about the deal communication that just get logged automatically. That would just be amazing. And then third around the due diligence process, it is still, as you know, being a deal lawyer, it is still very manual. You know, for our current transaction, we have to send the buyer every night, the due diligence tracking sheet. And it's still just very manual. And especially on the client, having to input all the information manually and distribute it to the team and stuff like that. I do think we have the process down, but it is more manual than you know I'd hoped it would be at this point in 2020. Yeah, it's remarkable how resistant to change the industry has been over the last decade. I mean, when you think about a due diligence process, the vast majority of deals start with the same template in terms of the due diligence requests. And those questions are very easy to anticipate on the sell side. And you can imagine you know, really templatizing the process to the point where you're effectively anticipating the questions, you're linking those questions in with files, and you're able to serve up a pre-organized due diligence Q&A to any buyer that comes in the door, simply by virtue of the fact that, hey, if you've seen 10 due diligence request lists, you've seen them all. That is very true, especially if you specialize in an industry. There's a lot of trends, or sorry, rather, the themes of the questions are generally gonna cluster. So if you're selling tech-enabled business process outsourcing firms a lot, or advising them rather, 
they're always going to have questions around the 1099s and employee issues and stuff like that. So you can kind of pregame to a certain degree. Absolutely. And by the way, that's an extensible observation to many of the different stages in an M&A process or a fundraise. One of the things that we're noticing in our business, even just on the compliance side, is the opportunity to templatize a lot of the compliance reports as well. So whether it's PSTs or OBA reports that are being filed, you know, many of those things are very rote and are purely back office. One of the other things that we have to take in consideration in any automation discussion is what is the risk associated with deploying that automation? And we've observed that you know, when automation is to serve the interests of a back office function, i.e. a function that's not exposed to our customers' clients, then there tends to be much more interest in taking that leap as opposed to having an automation solution that is exposed to the client simply because of the perceived risk of using that new automated solution. I mean, I can see how a client would be frustrated, you know, for a bank deploying this. It's tough. I agree 100% with what you said, but when you're touching a client on the front end, when you're deploying a new automation solution, I almost hate to say it, but it sucks because you have to force yourself to use that solution and go in eyes wide open knowing it's not going to be perfect, but I unfortunately think in the financial services space to implement a new you know, front-end solution, you almost have to force yourself to use it and respond real-time so that you force the team to learn how to use it, but also you can kind of work out the kinks or the errors and the workflows or whatever. I don't know. This is kind of my perspective on it. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you also need to be working with a type of client that is game for that. I mean, it may just be simply be an age issue or a size of transaction issue, or maybe there's other things you can do to de-risk it. You know, for example, you know, you might parallelize the process where, you know, a number of the elements are living in the cloud workflow solution, but then you're also tracking that in a traditional Microsoft Excel spreadsheet, just to give that client confidence that, there's still full coverage. But those are all things that we're considering as we're starting to deploy some of our automations live that you know, it is much easier, we've learned, to deploy this automation if it's purely a back office function than if it is a front office function. And it's still something that we're going to have to figure out as we continue to test and deploy new software solutions within the space. All right. That's a pretty interesting comment. Yeah. I mean, in any event, I did want to thank you Alex, for your time and your participation in the Pencil Stand podcast. You know, really look forward to continuing the conversation and to tracking Evolve's progress here in 2020. Likewise, thanks for the opportunity. We're glad to be a friend of the deal site. Thanks so much, Alex. That's it for today. Special thanks to Alex Coles and Evolve Capital Partners. You can rate and review Pencils Down on Apple Podcasts. Have a question for us? Send us an email at pencilsdown at finalis.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Pencils Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.